Welcome to episode three of The Afterword, coming to you live from Glenside, Pennsylvania. My name is Josiah Pettit. I'm the director here at the Westminster Bookstore. And tonight we are honored to welcome Mark Rogop and Trillia Newbell for a conversation on race, diversity, and lament. Johnny Gibson, who's our normal host, is away on vacation, uh, so we asked Trillia if she'd be willing to, to step in and interview Mark tonight, and so we're, we're delighted to have her on uh, sort of as a, a bonus guest. Trillia has written and contributed to several books, including Sacred Endurance, Finding Grace and Strength for a Lasting Faith as well as the children's book, God's Very Good Idea, a true story of God's delightfully different family. She also contributes to Christianity Today and the Gospel Coalition and is an acquisitions editor at Moody Publishers. Mark Rogop is the lead pastor at College Park Church in Indianapolis and is the author of Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. Dark Clouds was one of those books that uh, when it was first released a few years ago, we, we just could not keep it in stock. And since then has been a, a book that I've returned to often uh, personally for uh, particularly for giving away to friends and family who've, who've lost loved ones. Um, Dark Clouds was named the 2020 ECPA Book of the Year. Most recently, Mark published Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Recon Reconciliation. And uh, both of Mark's books I, I don't have copies of because I've given my last ones away recently to, to friends. And uh, I think is a, a testament to um, both of those books that they're ones that I find myself uh, buying often. Uh, and in fact, the only reason I have Trillia's book, God's Very Good Ideas, because I borrowed it from my, my three-year-old. So Levi, I'll give it back after this episode. Um, but both Trillia and Mark are, are some of our favorite authors, and um, God's Very Good Idea and Weep With Me in particular are ones that as a team have been very helpful uh, to read as we've, as we've been thinking through the, the complex and polarizing issues uh, surrounding race and diversity. So we're especially excited to have them on tonight for this conversation. You can find all of their books on our website at wtsbooks.com slash afterward. So with that, let me turn it over to Trillia with a question. What are some of your favorite books that you've used in your own counseling and parenting, speaking and teaching? Can you share a story or two about how you've used books in ministry? Trillia? Hello. So I'm asked the question, what are my, some of the books that I would have suggested in counseling? And here's the answer. I'm actually not going to answer that question. So since I'm live, I can do whatever I want. I'm going to answer what has ministered to me. Because when someone, when I'm counseling someone, I'm, I'm typically going to be waiting and listening to them rather than sh sh sharing books with them, or I might share some scripture, but I, it's not typical that I am going to throw books at them. So for me, I often, um, I've experienced four miscarriages, um, Mark, and so lament is something very near and dear to my heart. I didn't really learn and understand lament until my second miscarriage and um, future grace by John Piper. 
he has a chapter in it on despondency. And I didn't understand what it meant to be despondent until that that moment when I couldn't get out of bed. And his book, just helping me understand that Jesus, not just a man of sorrows, but wept and related so deeply and dearly with my sorrows and my pain, it, it revolutionized, I guess, the way that I understood pain and could and um, was able to be really honest with the Lord about my sorrows. And then the Psalms, which of course, again, isn't a book that you would recommend, but in terms of our physical books, um, it is a book, but, <laughs> but I just, I run to the Psalms. Okay, and then another book, um, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. Have you ever read the book? It mm -hmm. is so helpful in ministry. So one of the things, there's so many pitfalls and things that we could fall into and traps really in ministry, I think, um, in regards to overly thinking about ourselves. And it helped me to serve better, to go on a stage and be able to speak to people and forget about myself and entrust all of it to the Lord. And, and so those two books in particular were very helpful and meaningful to me. And then an then there's other history books that, or books like The Warmth of Other Suns and other books that um, have inspired and encouraged me. But if we're talking about counseling, I think those two books in general um, benefited me. What about you? Well, I'm glad to hear that you don't throw books at people. <laughs> I tend to do that, though. I throw them at them, uh, not literally and physically, um, because... To me, a, a good book is like a good friend that just kind of walks alongside you. And it's interesting, even you described it, that there's particular moments when, you know, you need a message and you need that message in a way that is able to be paced with kind of where you're at and uh, to be able to be digested in a maybe a different way than a conversation or a sermon, something you can kind of just marinate in for a while. I think uh, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul while in college was the first book that just kind of blew my mind in terms of the bigness of God. Um, and also just wrestling uh, at, a, at a personal level with just who is God, what is he like? And, you know, R.C. Sproul just helped me to see a uh, uh, a huge view of uh, what God is not only like, but who he needs to be in my life. Um, while my wife and I were doing premarital counseling, we read a book aloud to each other. We read Christian Living in the Home by Jay Adams. And it was just a delightful experience where we were sitting um, at like a Bob Evans restaurant. Yeah, <laughs> I really splurged for these date nights. And uh, we were sitting there reading these, 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 there we go, reading these uh, books to each other. And then we would uh, just underline important sentences that we felt like were meaningful. And then with our premarital counselor, we would review what it was that we underlined. And it created a, um, an ability to have a conversation with a counselor, but also just kind of a meeting point for us then to talk about really important subjects that, you know, you just maybe wouldn't talk about without the presence of a, of a book in your life. Um, interestingly enough, and, uh, and I talk about this in my book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, when our daughter uh, died and we found out that she had died in utero, but before we went to the hospital, I stopped at the, my church office to grab a few things, knowing that I was going to be away for the office for a number of days. Uh, and, but I wanted to grab a couple of books. Uh, and I, well, the book that I grabbed was part of the 
the Swans Are Not Silent series on the life uh, or of John Bunyan, The Fruit of Affliction and William Cooper. And I remember sitting in our um, hospital room reflecting not just on the content of what I was receiving, but also the life story of other people who had suffered and how God had used those hardships in order to just illumine uh, a path for them moving forward. And so, you know, the supremacy of God in preaching is another one informed how I see the event on a Sunday morning of bringing God's word and the uh, intersection between the Bible and the glory of God meeting in the preaching moment. So yeah, books have been really important in uh, shaping. And one of the conversations I often have with someone that uh, maybe I'm trying to get to know, or hey, what are the five books or three books that have most shaped your life? You, you can tell a lot about a person by the, the books that have served as kind of the foundation of their life. No, I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. Well, I think we're going to be talking about my job a little here. We yeah. are. Yeah. yeah. In fact, <laughs> that's my role to ask you this next question, which is so my understanding is that you're now an acquisitions editor at Moody, and that's a pretty cool title. That means like you get to get things. Your, your goal is to grab stuff, to acquire things. So <laughs> I bet a lot of people don't know what an acquisitions editor does. So why don't you tell us what you acquire? Well, I say I get to, this is not my job description, but it is my job description. I get to look for evidence of grace and potential in people all day long. So I am looking for people who can write books to encourage the church. It is absolutely one of the most thrilling things that I've been able to do in the last, um, well, two months. <laughs> it's just started. And it's been a joy. I love it. So an acquisitions editor, they are the people who decide on what books are published in publishing houses. So they we evaluate proposals. We think of ideas. We may approach an author who um, someone we, we see or we know or we've seen an idea. Um, or often it com they come to us and we then decide on whether to publish that that. Um, with with a board, it's usually not just me deciding, but it it, it kind of I, I just in a lot of ways it is my job, my position is to decide books, and so it is a joy to get to acquire um, books and authors, and I love books, so I want to make that clear that my not throwing books at people is not <laughs> because I don't love books. I love books. Look behind me. All around me, um, but that's that's what I do as an acquisitions editor. So I mean, come on, you, you you've been doing this job for two months. First of all, let me ask you: Is it? I mean, was this is this your was this your dream job? Did you think you'd be an acquisitions editor, or because of your writing, did you kind of say, you know what, this could actually be a pretty cool thing? Did you ever see yourself as, as an acquisitions editor? You know, I am one of the strangest people. I have zero goals in life. <laughs> actually know how I've done the things I've done because I don't have any dirt like big dreams or I oddly don't so I would say it wasn't like this massive dream of mine I think it was a natural progression from my ministry so I was a freelance journalist writing for a secular paper and then I started writing books and articles and and what I realized I was doing is I was always connecting people with agents or or people with publishers, I was already doing the work, or I, or I would 
talk to a friend and say, you really should write on this. And so I was doing that work of an acquisitions editor for free. And so, <laughs> and so thankfully this position opened up and, um, and it is a, a really great place for my gifts, my various gifts all combined in one, just um, a bit of a visionary and able to, I want to support others and other people in their ministry. And so, um, so yeah, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was a, something I dreamed of only because I, that's not my MO, it's not how I operate, but it is something that I love and I'm grateful for. So, you know, Haddon's, um, uh, Haddon Robinson, who taught at uh, Dallas Seminary, he taught in homiletics. He said that, you know, he he wasn't the guy who knew how to preach very well, but as a seminary prof, he had to listen to the worst sermons ever. So my question for you is, surely as an acquisitions editor, you come across, I'm sure, a lot of great content, but I guess, and that you shouldn't tell us anything. <laughs> there, there's There's got to be some stuff you're just like, for real? Like, there's no way, right? Right? Well, I mean, so when you receive something and you think, okay, the ride, I think about the first, the very first proposal that I sent to a, was terrible, it's terrible. And so it was rejected and it should have been because I was just learning. I didn't know really what I was doing, but thankfully I had someone to help me and to coach me. And now I'm continuing to learn and grow. So the answer is, of course, there are um, chapters or proposals that often what you get are people who are writing and trying to do too much. So they think this is it. This is my only book I'll ever write. So I'm going to write every thought in down. And that's not what, you know, it's not effective. It's not clear. Um, it's rare that I get something yet where it's completely just, you You can't read it. It's just like, <laughs> I have not had that experience. Um, All right. Well, and you've only been on the job two months, right? So uh, I think yeah. what people need to know when they're listening to this podcast or watching this uh, video is that you're a nice acquisitions <laughs> editor. So that's awesome. Good acquisitions editor, where I can coach you, I can help you, I can encourage you so you can grow in this. <laughs> Man, your inbox is going to be flooded now. So I get this from people, you know, send me an email and say, hey, I'd like to be a writer, you know, how did you do it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what tips would you have for aspiring authors if they've got a amazing book idea and they're like, Moody should publish this? What do they, what do, they do? Okay, so they're an aspiring author. Have they written before? I would have a lot of questions for them. So have All right, let's start this. They, they think, I would like to write a book. Um, someday, somehow, somewhere. Where, 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 do they, where do they start? Do they start by just writing a book someday? No. So if, because here's the thing. A lot of people say to me, I would love to write a book. And I say, okay, send me a thousand words. I probably received a thousand words from about two people. Why? Because writing a book, as you know, Mark, is very difficult. <laughs> and so everyone who aspires to write a book, they actually don't want to write a book. They want to have written a book or they want to, they, they may have romanticized what it's like to write a book, but we know it's a lot of labor. It's often lonely. It's not what people think it is. And so I dig a little bit deeper and ask them, okay, what are some ideas that you have? I would tell them to write, 
write on articles, write a journal, write on a blog. I would also tell them to read, read a lot. Um, and then I would encourage them in a certain direction, depending on what it is that they really. So if, if you came to me, Mark, and said, hey, I think I have another book idea. That would be a really different conversation than say someone who's never written a book before. So Crossway, I just want you to know, I'm trying to get Mark right now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> And so that would be that would be a very different conversation. So so I think it, we'd have to dig a little deeper. Yeah. Yeah. You know, writing a book, my last book was 40,000 words. So it's writing a thousand words 40 times. Right. I mean, so in one respect, it isn't complicated, but it's really, really challenging and uh, and hard. It's uh, certainly not a, an easy uh, task for anybody. And then to have something important or at least something that you think is helpful to say. Um, is also pretty critical. So children's books, you've written um, this wonderful book called God's Very Good Idea. I love it. Um, how, what was it like writing a children's book? And then how different was that from maybe your other book, United, and just kind of how those, how those things are just so really different? Same kind of theme, but yeah. really different angles. And yeah. one, one is a bus and one doesn't, you know, so... Yeah. So it's kind of think of this, take the, this word, Imago Dei, and put it in one word that a three-year-old can understand. <laughs> that is writing a kid's book. It is taking big, massive concepts and ideas and theology and narrowing it down in such a way that a child can, if they may not understand, but they'll get a little, and eventually they will hopefully understand it. Um, and then trying to make it memorable, something where there's a rhyming or something that kind of has a, a rhythm to it, re repetition, so that they can get it in their little hearts and minds. So it is very different because you're, you're not working on trying to make a sentence sound <laughs> good. It, it's trying to make one word, make all the sense and sum up some theological concept because it is a Christian book and, and, and make it, hope it sticks. So that was my experience. Every, every kid author is probably a little different, but my experience was trying to take some of the big concepts that I, re, racial reconciliation, what is that? And, um, or the gospel and, and trying to explain it. Mm. Um, in such a way that kids can understand. And so it was it was a fun venture and um, one that I look forward to doing again, which I um, will soon enough. And yeah. So dumb question, because I've never done a kid's book before. Do you start with the illustrations as a concept or do you start with the words as ideas? Which, which, which comes for first there, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, so for me, because I deal with words, I wrote it and then she, the illustrator, based the idea off of my words. So you didn't illustrate your own book? Oh no. That would be, if you look on Twitter right now, I have a picture. I saw it today. <laughs> I saw it today. Kung Fu Panda, right? <laughs> that was amazing. Your husband killed that drawing. You, on the other hand, should stick to writing. So, sorry. Exactly. <laughs> God gives many gifts. Oh, I'm yeah. That's yeah. not mine. So is, I, not I, I, I appreciate my your ministry, but you're right. Yeah, that's not yours. Stick with writing. So, yeah. yeah. So uh, Catalina did a 
wonderful job of illustrating God's very good idea and illustrating all of the book in that series, the tell, tells that tell the truth by the Good Book Company. It's just mm. this beautiful stuff. But the words came first, and then she illustrated. I I do not. Um, I, I she, she did such a great job. She sent them and the the director, the um, art director from Good Book sent him them and I gave my ideas and thoughts but she took off yeah that's awesome how long does it take to produce a children's book compared to is it is it faster or is it because of the, of the need for really clear but simple language does it take longer so produce or write so those are two different so I'm not yeah. sure if you mean how long does it take to publish how long did it take me to write yeah it didn't, it didn't take me that long it maybe took me about two months, month okay. and a half, because it's it's 500 to 600 words right. and getting it, just narrowing it. So right. I would write and then we'd edit and then I'd write and then we edit down and trim more. So it's a really different experience and process than writing. Right. Yeah. And so it was good. Well, Mark, I think it's time to think about dark clouds. What do you think? I'd like to. It's raining here in uh, no. Indianapolis, so that's fine. Well, I, I, in Dark Clouds, you say that it took you a decade to write. So we were just talking about kids' book that took me a minute to write. Not really. Maybe a month. But it took you a decade. Now, it could be – well, I don't want to answer your own question. Why did it <laughs> take you a decade to write and develop before ultimately publishing it? Yeah, the, I uh, wanted to put something in print on the subject of lament or grief for over 10 years. I just didn't know exactly how I wanted to say it because there were so many books that were written on grief. But what I kept running into and had this deep pastoral angst is I would share a thought with somebody who was grieving based upon our own experience, what I'd studied in the scriptures, or uh, preached a series on it. And then afterwards, someone would say, hey, have you like put this together in some way that I could explore this further? And I kept saying, no, man, somebody should write that. No, 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 no. And eventually I got tired of saying, no, no one's done that. And uh, and so it, it, it was a 10-year journey of just kind of having a this, this burden and this passion that just wouldn't um, really uh, leave me. And, um, and then on a sabbatical in 2014, uh, working with a writing coach, began just sitting down saying, okay, so what would this look like? And um, initially we had one idea, then came up with another, and then we sort of came back to this central concept of, you know, I just think people in general don't understand what it means to lament. And that for me was a helpful category that just really explained the previous years of my life. And so yeah. it's not as though I started my grief journey knowing what lament was. Rather, what happened is I was like experimenting accidentally with it. And then when I found the category, I was like, oh, this is what's been going on in my life for the last six to seven years. And um, then wanted to try and, and talk about it in a way that would help uh, have people have the same experience that I did and just kind of discovering, oh, this is what's been going on. And then once you know about it, you begin to see it all throughout the Bible because it's all throughout the Bible. Yeah, so it's interesting that you said that there were so many people who were mm -hmm. asking, okay, can you can you give this to me? And as I've seen it 
go out into the world, it's so clear that it struck a nerve. It, it has done really well and it's encouraged the faith of so many and won awards. And so one, I wonder, did you expect this kind of reception? Of course, almost no one expects it, but, but what are some stories that, that you've received on how people have been blessed by this book? Yeah, no, it's it's actually shocking to me that people are reading it. Uh, I mean, and you know, Trillia, the something kind of goes through your head when you're writing a book. You you go through these stages of this is an amazing opportunity to I can really do this. To like you quit a thousand times on the project. And my poor wife, how many times I said this is a huge mistake. You know, Crossway should never have allowed me to do this. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, in fact, when the awards were given, I literally packed up my computer uh, and uh, they happened to say the name of the book as my computer was closing down. And I flipped my computer back up to say, wait a minute, I think I think something just happened here. And my wife, you know, was like, what does this mean? And I'm like, I have no idea. And it's just been a crazy journey of just like, um, you know, never, never intended to just do anything else other than look, I just I just want to help people who are hurting. Um, and yeah, I got an email today from someone and I get an email just about maybe two, three times a week, uh, from a mom whose 30 year old son, it's a tragic story who had her, his wife had just given birth to their uh, firstborn son. He had a massive heart attack, gave him CPR three weeks later, he, he goes into a coma, he dies. They have grandchildren that were uh, burned in an um, incident in the kitchen. And she just talks about this sort of stacking up of grief in her life and realizing that she simply is praying, God, I want my circumstances to change. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she, she writes about the fact that it was an aha moment for her to realize that not only are her circumstances not going to change, but she knows she needs to be content and joyful in that. But what does she do with the gap in between? Like, you know, the Bible tells us to rejoice always. We all know that we're supposed to rejoice. This woman knows that she's supposed to rejoice. The issue isn't if that's true. The issue is how do you get there? And so yeah. she, she wrote about how the book was helpful to give her a language or a path um, to move her from where she is to where she needs to be in the Lord. And so that, that story is just repeated over and over. Um, along with people, the most common thing that people have said is, this book just described the last five years of my life. I had no idea exactly what I was going through. This actually um, is it. Um, and uh, so I, that's that was the goal, and I'm thankful that the Lord has seen fit to help hurting people, because yeah. that's what we wanted to do. Well, amen. I wonder, at the top of this hour, I talked about how the Lord helps me learn to lament. And I'm using the word, assuming I know what, what it means, but I wonder why you chose lament as your um, focus. I, I, I think um, it's hard for people to lament. Yeah. And so I wondered why, why uh, because there's all sorts of different ways that I, I'm assuming you could have gone, but you went to lament, which I think is really important. So why, why that? direction? Because I found that lament was not only a biblical language, but it was terribly missing in our Christian lexicon. You know, if one out of every three Psalms is lament, it just seems like it ought to be more a part of our life and our, uh, even our Christian experience. 
maybe even our worship. You know, if you were to look at the number of songs that we sing um, on a typical Sunday morning, it, it, you know, our diet of worship in 21st century America is not one out of every three songs uh, being something in regards to um, lament. And so what I wanted to do is not just talk about grief, but I wanted to talk about a language that the Bible is given as a tool to move us from our pain in order to being able to choose to trust. And I find that most believers who've really studied their Bibles, they want to get there. They just don't know how. Or if they've really studied their Bible, they've come to the conclusion that the belief in God's sovereignty means that you never acknowledge this is really hard. And so I found that Christians lived in two ditches, either the ditch of denial, they go to church and they're like, everything's fine or despair, like, if I feel like this, God must not be true, and I am not must not even be a Christian anymore. And I'm just like, ah, lament is like right in the middle that holds these two things intentions and, and intention and just says, look, this is the language of God's people when they know God is good, but life is really, really tough. So lament, to me, captures the essence of that. And I just, I found it to be helpful in my own soul, and I found it to be helpful in the life of our church in a way that was just really, really surprising. Okay, so if what you're saying is true, that we don't have a language for lament, we struggle with actually practicing lament, if I may use that word, can you give us an example? Show us, give us an example of what lament might look like in the life of someone who's grieving, which right now are a lot of people. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, for one, uh, I'll answer your question in just a second here, but one, the book of Lamentations is about what happens when an entire culture falls apart. And so, you know, it, and we would love that book, right? Because it says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. What we, many of us don't realize is that Jeremiah pronounced that over a situation that looked like a disaster. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we tend to think of that verse as, you know, a beautiful little cabin in the mountains. You know, it looks like a wasteland. And Jeremiah has the faith to say, look, every day God is still good. And especially right now in the middle of this kind of global pandemic and everything else that's going on, it's just good to be reminded um, tomorrow morning when we wake up, God is still going to be good. Yeah. Um, so if we start with the definition of lament, I defined it as a, a prayer in pain that leads to trust. So mm-hmm. it's a prayer language. I'm talking to God. That's why I argue that to cry is human, but to lament is uniquely Christian. It's a prayer in pain. I'm hurting. It leads somewhere, and it leads to trust. And it involves usually four key elements where I'm going to turn to God, lay out my complaint. I'm going to ask boldly for his help and choose to trust. And so, you know, many of us grew up in the church with kind of a prayer model of acts, you know, adore, confess, thanks, and supplication. And I would just suggest that maybe this could be a helpful structure for people to not only study maybe some of the lament psalms to see this turn, complain, ask, trust structure in it, but also then to use that as a model for their own prayer times. Just to say, God, I'm hurting, but I'm going to come to you. I'm going to tell you honestly what's really going on in my soul because you actually know it anyways. Um, I'm going to ask you to help me because your promises are true. And then I'm going to choose to trust because at the end of the day, I know that you're good even though I'm getting ready to leave the house and this is going to be a hard day, but you're still good. So mm-hmm. in our own personal prayer times and how we express our grief, uh, lament can really kind of be like some tracks that we can run our pain along to get us from where we are to where God wants us to be. That's really good. I love that you <laughs> emphasized he already knows. I, I think sometimes we don't want to say things out loud that are hard, that are confessional, like confessing even sin, because we either shame, guilt, or 
I think we forget God's all knowing. He knows. And so it's good to know that we aren't going to a God who doesn't already know and hasn't covered us. Um, okay. You mentioned complaint. I know that even in my own heart, it is hard to reconcile the idea of complaining. I read Psalms. I confess someone who is a Bible teacher reads the Psalms. Like <laughs> sometimes I read them like, can you really say that? And so tell us about complaint and yeah. what that really looks like and, and how can you do it and honor God? Because I right. think some people would be confused. Right. And just to kind of load up even further, you're kind of ee, ee, ee about the Psalms. Um, I mean, they just weren't, you know, this, they weren't just saying it. They were, imagine people singing that. I mean, like setting the music and there's people around you and you're all saying, you know, how long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or, you know, um, you know, how long will wicked rulers be allied with you? Yeah. Those who frame injustice by statute. I mean, yeah. Ooh, there's there's some spicy stuff in those uh, psalms, and I I think it serves the church to really maybe reclaim some of that gutsy, earthy kind of life is tough, but we can trust you. So you know, complaint. We need to understand first and foremost that you can sinfully complain. I mean, it, you, I'm not saying that you get a right to just do an emotional vomit where you tell God how unfair he is and why he's done you wrong and how you didn't sign up for this. Like you, you can 100% be sinful in your complaint. What I'm suggesting is that in the context of lament, complaint is where we lay out our burdens to the Lord and we say, I know you're sovereign. This doesn't fit. I, I know that you're good. I don't see how that's true here. Or in the book, I talk about the fact that um, after our stillborn daughter died and we found out we were pregnant and then we go to the doctor's office only to discover that she's got what's called a blighted ovum, which is a, um, a pregnancy that already terminated in the womb. So we found out about a miscarriage before the miscarriage happened, but all our numbers are going up. So we're in the same ultrasound room that we found out that our daughter had died. We're at the same doctor's office. We get in the car and my wife says in prayer, God, I know you're not mean, but it really feels like it today. That's a complaint yeah. where we just say, I know, but, and I think God knows that those things are a part of our souls and our complaints. If we just terminate in complaint, all we've done is to be sinful. But if we allow complaint to be a conduit to move us to trust, it becomes a very helpful way of, uh, of talking to the Lord. So complaint by itself um, isn't sufficient. It's designed to be part of a process where we're talking to the Lord. And the Bible is full of them. Even Jesus on the cross, you know, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a lot of things in the Bible that reflect things that we feel that we know aren't true, but man, they feel true nonetheless in the moment because of how hard life can be. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, you mentioned um, challenges and um, miscarriage and uh, miscarriages and just when you think of lament um, and e maybe even some of the benefits of um, maybe how helpful it was spiritually just to be able to talk to the Lord that way. You, you probably have some people who are listening who are like, man, it's kind of scary. I've never prayed that way. Like what, what encouragement would you have to people that, Hey, this can actually be helpful and maybe in ways that we don't even know. Yeah. Um, I might start crying. <laughs> just thought, just listening about your wife and just the thought of my own sorrows. I just, oh, um, and just to know 
how near God is to the brokenhearted. So I, um, yeah, I, I think the reality is what I'm experiencing right this now, right this moment is just that, um, the Lord just was really real to me. Mm. And so as I was able to not put on a, I couldn't put on a happy face. I am, I couldn't, uh, pull up bootstraps. I couldn't get myself out of it. All I could do was cry out to the Lord. I was at an end of myself. So the benefit for me was a deeper relationship and abiding in Jesus like I hadn't before. Um, And so it led me to the Lord now. And I know that some sorrows do and some some people are struggle with anger towards the Lord or anger in general. And so we're all processing in different ways and in different spaces and where, where stages where we are. Um, and I experienced some of that too. Like why Lord, why this person doesn't want a child. I long for a child, right? you know? And so those were some of those honest questions that I asked God. And then he just continued to draw near to me and in a real way and comfort me and remind me of his character. Um, yeah, I think of that, who, who have I in heaven but you? Um, I felt that in a real way. So so for me, the benefit is just, I God has always been faithful and I can say that without a trite bone in my body, mm. without trite or he, he has been faithful and he will be again. And so, um, and it helps me with the future. I will say, I think that part of that, that drawing near and came because I was in the word before my suffering. Right. And so I do believe that the Lord used a lot of Bible reading and trying to learn about him in that moment when it was really difficult to read. And, and so those are just, yeah, those are just some things, but God, I think he prepared me for that time of sorrow and I've had other sorrows, um, too. My older sister passed away, died, um, about seven years ago of a heart attack. And it's just so sad. My father died when I was 19. So death has been a part of my, Mm -hmm. um, my, my husband, both of his, um, brothers committed suicide. Mm. We are very familiar with death and it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, and, and so even those promises, every tear wiped away. I mean, it's, it's just real. It's something that I just believe and I long for, and he continues to draw near and comfort and encourage us in our, in our grief. So So, let me, let me ask you, since you've walked through so many difficult um, seasons, do you feel like other people around you um, understood when you were lamenting or, or what was, well, you've already nodded your head, not you're you're shaking your head. So, uh, but what, what was your, what was your sense of how people understood what was going on as you were even just talking to them about how sad you were? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition and I think it said mourning in silence or caring in silence or something like that. How to care for someone without saying anything at all. Right. <laughs> because in a lot of 
instances I experienced, maybe Job's friends, people who were good intentioned, but would say things that were um, harmful. And especially with miscarriages, I don't know what it is, but people, I think they, they want you to either get over it or, or they'll, they feel, feel things, um, they suggest certain ways that you should respond <laughs> and, or they'll say really, again, well-meaning things like, oh, next time or it try again. And, and so, and so the Lord gave me a lot of grace for the people who would say, and I just would, was able to block out some of those voices. There are a few that were really hard and harmful, but, um, but yeah, so the answer is books like your book will help people learn how to lament with their friends. I think that is one of the benefits of reading books like um, like yours, uh, because I think when we read something like Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, we start to gain an understanding of what other people are going through. Right. And so I have, I, I have found that some of those books are even that much more beneficial for the the other reader, for the for the the people who are trying to understand how to care for the person who is struggling. Um, and I think the saying goes something like, "If you live long enough, you will suffer too." I mean, we are all going to experience suffering in, in one degree or the other, but I do think understanding how to lament will only serve as we try to love the church, love people around us. So people failed, but <laughs> there's grace for that. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, isn't it so true that grief is scary? Um, you know, and I, I remember when I was writing the book, there was a family that was walking through um, a cancer diagnosis with their 18 to 19 year old son. And it was, it was not looking good. And eventually he passed away. And I remember the dad just leaning over an ottoman little uh, footstool by a chair in their home, just weeping and weeping and we, how long, Lord, why? And I've written a book on this and his grief was freaking me out. I mean, I, I got a category for this, but everything within me wanted him to stop, even though I knew what he was doing was biblically helpful and was uh, really, I'm sure, therapeutic for his own soul. But it's scary. And um, if you don't have a category or a language for it, you, you can tend to kind of want to hush people up because you want their grief to stop because their pain makes you really nervous that you're going to hurt like that someday. No, you're uh, exactly right. And I wonder what it is, Mark, that because we're church, right? We're supposed to be communal and together and lamenting and both we mourn with those who mourn, we rejoice with those who joy, rejoice. So why do you think that it is hard for us to share deep hurts with one another? I think two reasons. Um, One, I think it's because the the church in general has an underdeveloped understanding of suffering. Suffering doesn't sell well in American Christianity. We're a great triumphal people. We love victory in Jesus. And when the saints come marching in, you know, we love that kind of stuff, you know, um, and uh, shout to the Lord. I'm kind of dating myself with some songs here right now, but we love kind of that triumphal tone. And I think it reveals uh, a, a blind spot in what it means to suffer 
or when recessions don't go away, or it's part of what we're dealing with right now in this cultural crisis, when you can't fix a pandemic quickly. And where, where, you, where do you go when these things are like this? Um, and so I think that's, that's um, a, a really important thing for us to think through and, uh, and to consider. And I also just think that we, um, we don't like to suffer, so we want to get through it as quick as possible. And sometimes God wants to use things that are hard to teach us really deep lessons. And we're just, it's just not the playbook that some of us signed up for. It's the playbook of the Bible, but it's not the playbook that we were taught or understood. You know, I wonder if also um, there's a shame aspect. I think I mentioned shame earlier, I, I, like a fear of being um, related to as a victim, like a perpetual. Sure. I wonder if that is some of it also, at least for women, I wonder if, if oh, I'm sure it is. That's a great insight. Yeah. I should have mentioned that. That's, I think that's 100% true. Um, because it's only so many times you can get the look of, Oh, you're so broken when you share something, you know, and you begin to learn. I, I just, I don't want people to think I'm that way. Um, and uh, I don't want to acknowledge that I'm that weak. You know, I think that's, that's just part of both our pride um, and also just the broken nature of the world in which we live. Yeah. It makes me think of Ray Ortland, who is a pastor. Well, he's a retired pastor, writer, theologian, and he says something to the effect of we need gospel cultures. So not just gospel, we need our cultures need to be right. saturated by gospel grace and living. And um, that will probably help us to be open and honest, not just about lament, but about sin in general. Right. Can I read a quote that I have here from your book real quick? Sure. Okay. So it says, by asking God for help, we are not only marshalling, sorry, my, I need glasses evidently. So by asking God for help, we are not only marshalling the resources of an omnipotent God, we are also reminding our hearts that God can be trusted. How is asking for help related to trust? I think we've hit on it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, just as we ask, we're reminding our hearts of the promises that we know that are true. It's, it's sort of like, um, when we're singing a song on Sunday, we're not just rehearsing, uh, you know, these concepts. We're reminding our hearts, along with, you know, um, used to be a congregation of people together. All these other, all these other people believe this. Awesome! It helps you to uh, to trust the Lord even even more. So as we ask, it reinforces. Oh, that's right. I can ask because these promises are true. I can ask because God is faithful. And in the asking, it actually reaffirms who God is. Well, you know what? It's hilarious because we have about 150 different questions here <laughs> and there's no way we're going to get to them. But I'm going to flash these books because we were going to be talking about God's very good idea, which is my kids book and Weep With Me, which is your newest book. And I've been grateful to um, contribute a prayer to this book. And so I want us to um, I'd love to just hear your heart behind weep with me before we wrap this up. Um, I just, I, I love that you took your lament, your, your idea of lament and applied it to racial reconciliation. So I would just love to hear the heart behind this book um, as we get 
towards wrapping up? Yeah, so as I'm writing the book on Lament, the Dark Clouds Deep Mercy book, I'm beginning to also see a movement of racial reconciliation happening in our church. And um, that was somewhat by design and also somewhat by the demographics of the area in which our church is located. And as I began to really dive into Lament and also be able to listen to the stories of my black brothers and sisters and also listen about their experience in our predominantly white church, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. They're lamenting, and uh, and I began to discover that in order to really start down a path of racial reconciliation, you can come at that topic from history, you can come at it from theology, you can come at it from statistics, you can come at it from politics, or you can come at it from a perspective of these brothers and sisters are lamenting, and if you start there, it actually opens the door to deal with all those other issues but getting lament in the right order is really, really helpful. It doesn't solve all the problems, for sure, and it doesn't mean that any of these issues aren't important to talk about, but it does, getting in the right order, it really is helpful. And so I wanted to strike a different tone and then also have people maybe um, understand and hear from others like yourself to contribute laments in their own um, words from their own experience so that people could hear what does this actually sound like. Um, and then additionally, we took it on a civil rights vision trip. It took 50 leaders over the last two years to uh, Montgomery and Birmingham, Selma, Memphis. And as we're kind of jumping into American history, we're praying lament prayers, studying lament. It gave us a way to grieve together over what we were seeing and also a way for both black brothers and sisters, white brothers and sisters, um, Hispanic brothers and sisters, just to talk about their experiences in life and how to live out the gospel. And Lament was a really helpful tool to uh, kind of bring us to the table and have some good conversations. Yeah, it's one thing that we can all do and what we should do in Lament. And it's, you brought together quite quite the um, group of different pastors and leaders who contributed Lament prayers. So thank you for that work. Thank you for your ministry and what you're doing, Mark. And let's do us a favor. Pronounce your last name. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's 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 Vrogup, and the faster you say it, the more accurate you are. So you just need to blow through it. Vrogup, Vrogup, Vrogup. Vrogup, okay. There you go, you got <laughs> like, it. Let's call him Mark, which is your first name, but. <laughs> there we go. Vrogup, Vrogup. Okay, well, I have so enjoyed getting to this conversation, and maybe we can come back and take the second half and really talk about race, and it's a big topic that you can't do in five minutes. So um, thank you, Mark, for writing the books, for all that you're doing. And I am now going to pass it back over to Joshua, who's going to tell you about episode number four with my good friend, Melissa Kruger. Well, thank you, Trillia and Mark. It's been a privilege uh, having you join us tonight. And uh, thanks, thanks all of you for tuning in live. We hope that it has been a, a beneficial time and a, a helpful conversation. By way of closing, I wanted to announce that we'll be hosting Melissa Kruger for episode four of The Afterward on August 17th at 8 p.m. Melissa is the director of women's initiatives at the Gospel Coalition and the author of several books, including Five Things to Pray for Your Kids and The Envy of Eve. She's also got a brand new release coming out in, in just a few weeks. It's called Wherever You Go, I Want You to Know. And uh, we are really excited about this book. And um, so in closing, I thought I'd share the trailer for the book um, from Good Book Company. Um, you can watch it. We hope you'll stick around and watch it. And you can learn more 
about the book and, and what is coming on episode four of The Afterward. You can RSVP at wtsbooks.com slash afterward. So I'll sign off for now, and we hope to see you next time. Thanks. Hi, friends. I'm excited to share with you about a new children's book I've written. My kids are older now, but when they were young, I wanted to make sure that each and every day they heard from me. The most important thing I wanted for them was to love Jesus with all of their hearts. I know that in this world, there's so many messages coming to our kids each day that they need to be successful in school, and they need to be successful in sports, and they need to be successful in all of life but I wanted to make sure they knew that the only thing that really matters is loving Jesus. And so that's what I hope that this book will communicate to my kids still, because even though they're teenagers, they still need to hear it. And I need to hear it each day as a mom to remind me, what's my biggest priority? What's my greatest hope? I'd love to read a portion for you now. Listen, little one, I want you to know, I have a big dream wherever you go. There's so much to do and so much to see. It's fun just to wonder about all you could be. Perhaps you'll fly planes that go whoosh right up high or maybe raise crops that grow tall as the sky. You could be a chef and make meals for a king or maybe on stage you'll perform as you sing. Whatever you do, wherever you go, I have a big dream I want you to know. It's something exciting, something supreme. It's my greatest of hopes, my dream of all dreams. And whatever you do, wherever you start, I pray you love Jesus with all of your heart. While some days with our children may seem like they will never end, the years really do fly by. In the midst of all of our coming and going, all of our activities, all of our schooling, May we be parents who daily remember to tell our children that loving and knowing Jesus is the most important thing they can do. Parents, will you join me in sharing this message with our children?